0: Please open your Bible this morning to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible, just pull one out of the bench there in front of you there, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Today we come to a text that appears to be about an offering the Corinthians said that they would take for the poor Christians in Jerusalem. But at the heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. And the heart of this topic today is covetousness. Now most of us do not think that we would struggle with coveting, yet coveting is such a great temptation that God concluded His Ten Commandments with this statement: "Thou shalt not covet Exodus 2017." So coveting I mean it's right there in that same list with, "Do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not steal uh, or lie." God really wants us to conquer covetousness in our lives. The bottom line is this. Covetous people are miserable people. They're miserable because they are never content. Would you please stand with me and we'll see God's plan for us. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We concluded a couple of weeks ago with that great verse, verse 9, that Jesus Christ, He was rich he became poor that through his poverty coming to the earth and giving us salvation that we could be rich. Let's pick it up now in verse 10. And herein I give my advice, for this is expedient for you who have begun not only to do but also to be forward a year ago, that is, you started this a year ago. Now, therefore, perform the doing of it, That is, there was a readiness to will, so there may be a performance also out of that which ye have. For if there first be a willing mind, it is accepted according to that a man hath, and not according to that he hath not. Now, we'll finish this passage during the sermon. Drop down to his concluding thought here in chapter 9 and verse 1. Chapter 9, verse 1. For as touching the ministering to the saints, that is this offering, it is superfluous, it is redundant for me to write to you. For I know the forwardness of your mind, for which I boast of you to them of Macedonia, that Achaia was ready a year ago, and your zeal hath provoked very many. Yet have I sent the brethren, lest our boasting of you should be in vain on this behalf, that as I said, ye may be ready, lest haply, if they of the Macedonia come with me and find you unprepared with this gift, we that we say not ye should be ashamed in this same confident boasting. Therefore, I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren that they would go before unto you and make up beforehand your bounty, whereof ye had noticed before that the same might be ready as a matter of bounty and not as of covetousness. May we pray. Father, may the Spirit of God take the Word of God in your principles and help each one of us uh, to show our love and gratitude to you by how we live how we give, how we forgive. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. All Howard ever really wanted in life was more. I mean, just a little bit more. He wanted more money. He was able to turn an inheritance into a billion-dollar Empire. He wanted more fame, and so Howard broke into the Hollywood scene and became a filmmaker and star. He wanted more thrills, so he designed and built and piloted the fastest aircraft in the world. He wanted more power, so he secretly dealt political powers so skillfully that two U.S. presidents became his pawns. He was convinced that more would bring him satisfaction, but history shows otherwise. He ended his life Emaciated, weighing only 90 pounds, even though his frame was six foot four. His fingernails had grown into long corkscrews. His teeth were rotting and black. His arms had needle marks from his drug addictions. Howard Hughes died believing the myth of more. His net worth was four billion dollars, though one of the wealthiest men in the world. Because of covetousness, he died, by all normal standards, an insane man. He died insane. Covetousness. You say, oh, that's for those really rich people, the billionaires. No, covetousness is not just an adult problem, not just a problem for the wealthy. Covetousness... It begins in toddlerhood. Have you heard of the toddler's creed? If it's mine, it's mine. If it's yours, it's mine. If I like it, it's mine. If I can take it from you, it's mine. If I am playing with someone, all of the pieces are mine. If I think it's mine, it's mine. If I saw it first, it's mine. If I had it, then put it down, it's still mine. If you had it and you put it down, it's now mine. If it looks like the one that I have at home, it's mine. If it's broken, it's yours. <laughs> Conquering covetousness. You know, today it seems that we're drowning in a sea of covetousness. Advertisers are good at convincing you and me that we are not happy. Uh, and we will not be happy until we buy their product. Americans who believe that happiness is found in money is at an all-time high. A survey was done that three out of four college freshmen believe happiness is linked to prosperity. Many had parents who got divorced because they worked overtime. They made lots of money so they could buy buy, uh, bigger houses and nicer cars. Uh, And many choose a career path based solely on How much money will I make rather than this career path brings me joy or this career path helps others? What is covetousness? Look with me in your notes. Uh, Covetousness is wanting, first of all, wrong things. It is wanting wrong things, like wanting things just to make me happy, wanting wealth for myself, wanting glory and praise from others, wanting wrong things. You know, a few years ago, uh, uh, about five years ago, a beauty queen, Miss Argentina, died from complications from cosmetic surgery, leaving behind seven-year-old twins, twin girls, coveting wrong things can include someone's abilities. Coveting can include wanting someone's looks. It's not just things. Coveting is wanting wrong things. Coveting, secondly, is wanting right things for wrong reasons. Take spiritual leadership, for instance. The Bible says that if a man desires the office of a bishop, a a pastor, a missionary, he desires a good thing, a good work. But wanting to be a spiritual leader uh, to make an impact on the lives of others, uh, that, that's a great thing. But wanting it for, for personal recognition or personal prestige, that is covetousness. Covetousness is not just wanting wrong things or wanting right things for the wrong reasons, but coveting can also be wanting uh, right things at the wrong time wanting the right thing at the wrong time. Any couple that chooses to have a romantic, intimate relationship before marriage is wanting a right thing, but at the wrong time. We hear it on TV. We see it in the movies. I've had people tell me, we love each other. We're committed to each other. We want to spend the rest of our lives with each other. And we want to live together without getting married. After all, what does a little piece of paper mean? Nothing. Nothing. That little piece of paper called a marriage license means something to God. It means a serious lifelong commitment. It means the difference between right and wrong. It means that you care about what God cares about. In your notes, marriage is honorable in all, and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge, Hebrews 13, 4. God said it. So covetousness is not just wanting wrong things. It's not just wanting right things for the wrong reasons or right things at the wrong time. But covetousness is is also wanting right things but wanting them in excess wanting right things in excess. Take money, for example. Uh, Money is not a wrong thing. It's a necessary part of life. Paul told Timothy, he said, if any man provide not for his own household, he's worse than an infidel, an unbeliever. He's denied the faith. And it takes money, uh, working for money, to be able to provide for your family. Uh, But God warns us not to love money, not to make money an idol. Uh, I may think that more money will make me happy, but I will soon learn that it does not. Look at the bottom of page 1 there. Agor is a servant of Solomon. He saw what riches did to the king. And he wrote chapter 30. Solomon didn't write Proverbs 30. In verse 8, he prayed this prayer, give me neither poverty nor poverty. Poverty nor riches. If I'm in poverty, I'm tempted to steal. If I become rich, I'm tempted to forget God. God, let me be content with being in the middle class and not covet other people's stuff. Good prayer. Good prayer right from the Bible. Now, that's what covetousness is, how to conquer covetousness. So I'd like to share three foundational Bible principles that will help you win the battle of covetousness. It's simple yet profound. Letter A, love God. Love God for who he is. He is your creator. The Bible says in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. God made you and gave you life. You exist in this earth because God, the giver of life, gave you life. Look at this next slide here is my life only of value if i am planned choose life god is the one who truly plans parenthood god creates life and according according to this book this bible god's absolute truth Life begins at conception, Psalm 51, 5. Life begins at conception, Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5. You say, Pastor, that sounds political. That's not political at all. That's Bible. That's Bible. That's what Christians believe. That's what people who know the Bible and know God, that's what we believe. Because it's true. It's true. It's not a mass of cells. Now, they have changed that to S-E-L-L-S, a mass that sells. No, it's a baby. God is the one who gives life. Paul quoted the Greek poet Epimenides on Mars Hill, a man who'd been dead for hundreds of years, and Paul said, for in him we live and move and we have our being, Acts 17, 28. What is Paul saying? Paul's saying that if your heart beats one more time. Paul says, if you enjoy one more meal, Paul says, if you enjoy one more day to live, God gave you that gift of life. He is your creator. Secondly, he is your savior. There is a heaven, and there's only one way to heaven, and only God can take you to heaven. But you can't go to heaven with sin in your heart. Your sins must be forgiven, and only Jesus Christ can forgive your sins. And so when Jesus walked this earth, he stood before the people of Israel, and he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. And here we, we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world, John wrote. We do not become Christians because our parents took us to church when we were kids. We become Christians by faith. We become Christians by making a personal commitment from our heart to Jesus Christ. We become Christians by believing that Jesus died on the cross and that he rose again the third day, which is the first day of the week. And this is how we become a Christian. It's not getting baptized, it's not a sacrament, it's not a good work, it's not giving an offering, it's not being a good citizen. Listen to what the Bible says For by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. That's in any Bible you can look at it, and it's going to say the same thing: one way to heaven, Jesus Christ by faith. So if you if you want to conquer covetousness, first you need God's help. You need God's help in salvation. You've got to love God from your heart. And Jesus said the greatest commandment is: love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind, and soul, Matthew 22, 37. So, if you want to conquer covetousness, it begins in the heart, begins with loving God. Notice on page 3, your note, secondly, it is to thank God. Thank God for what He has given. Thank God for His gifts. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Any good thing you have, God gave it to you. God gave it to you, and so thank you is appropriate to the God of heaven. Now, follow with me. Look in your notes there. Covetousness comes from a heart of greed and selfishness that we were born with. But when you invite Jesus Christ to become your Savior, you get a new heart. Contentedness comes from a heart of love and thankfulness. Covet, content. At the root of covetousness is a rejection of what God has supplied. That's the bottom line. And that's why God hates covetousness in our lives. In Numbers 11, the Jews are complaining. They're slapping God in the face by saying, it's not enough, God. I have these needs. I have these expectations. You're not taking care of them. You're not meeting my needs. You're not meeting my expectations. I want more. God, I deserve more. Don't we do the same thing today? Oh, we wouldn't say it out loud, but we are tempted to think, God, God, I deserve just a little bit more. God, I, I I deserve a little bit more money and some more things. God, I deserve just a little bit more health. I deserve it. And we all know that politicians can feed this entitlement mentality. And it's wrong. The Atlantic Magazine observed that over the past 100 years, we have often turned yesterday's luxuries into today's necessities. 1900, the year my grandma was born. In 1900, less than 10% of families owned a stove or had access to electricity or phones. In 1915, less than 10% of families owned a car. In 1930, less than 10% of families owned a refrigerator or clothes washer. In 1945, less than 10% of families owned a clothes dryer or an air conditioner. In 1960, the year that I was born, less than 10% of families owned a dishwasher or a color TV. In 1975, less than 10% of families owned a microwave. In 1990, less than 10% of families had a cell phone or had access to the Internet. The article of this magazine concluded today, at least 90% of the country has a stove, electricity, car, fridge, clothes washer, air conditioner, color TV, microwave, and cell phone. And they make our lives better. They might even make us a little happier, but they're never enough. We never have enough. We have so much more. Than the last two generations had. Contentedness focuses on what you you have. Covetousness focuses on what you don't have. What do you focus on? What's your focus? What you have or what you don't have? Uh, It'll be a great day when you discover and believe and live your life based on this little saying. It's a saying we have in our kitchen. The best things in life aren't things. The best things in life aren't things. And we've had a a church family, and a few years ago they had a fire, and you know they lost all of their things. They lost all of their things. But the best things they have were their salvation. The fire couldn't take it. Uh, They had their lives. The fire didn't take that. They had the relationship as family that didn't take that. They still had their peace and their forgiveness and their joy in their heart. Fire can't take that. It can take a lot of things, but it can't take the best things because the best things in life aren't things. We have so much stuff, we have to store it. And so the storing of our stuff, uh, the U.S. now has 2.3 billion square feet of storage space. The Self Storage Association says that Every man, every woman, every child could stand all at the same time under the total roof space of all the storage units and have seven square feet for themselves. One out of every 10 households rents a storage unit. We have so much stuff because of this covetousness issue. And then we toss the stuff. We put it in storage, and then we often toss it. uh, Here's a a goodbye sign. I'll miss you right now. Uh, You know, if you don't pay your storage unit fee in 90 days, they can auction it off. And now they have reality TV shows, storage wars. Uh, These guys buy storage units at an auction, and they're trying to find valuable stuff. Now, I've never seen the show. I've seen the commercial. Well, where does all the stuff go that nobody values? It goes to the dumpster where does that stuff go I'm going to show you the cemetery of the stuff there's the cemetery of the stuff but didn't Jesus warn us about loving stuff so much isn't that what he said he said lay up for yourselves treasures in where in heaven why did he say that because Jesus also said lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust doth corrupt there it is and where thieves break through and steal. Someone said coveting is resenting God's goodness to others and ignoring God's goodness to me. So how do we conquer covetousness? Love God for who He is, thank God for what He has given, and then thirdly, uh, give to God for what He has promised give to God for what he has promised. He will give you joy. He will give you treasure. And so let's, let's now take a look at the text and carefully see the case Paul builds, why Christians in Corinth should take up a, an offering for poor saints in Jerusalem. Many of the foreign Jews who became Christians on the day of Pentecost, 50 days after the resurrection, they got saved, they stayed in Jerusalem, and the church grew and it grew. And and in fact, it grew so much, it grew into the thousands. Uh, People say to me, I just don't like a big church. Well, then you wouldn't like the church that Jesus started because by Acts 5.18, it had grown to over 20,000 people. It was only thinned out by persecution in, uh, uh, in the book of Acts chapter 8. Look at what Paul says to these Corinthian Christians. Number one in your notes there, uh, give what you promised to give a year ago. That's verse 10. It is expedient. That means it is to your advantage. You promised it, Corinthians. Now, now keep your promise. Secondly, give willingly look at verse 11 and 12. In verse 11 and 12, look what he says. Uh, he says, it uh, now, now perform the doing of it, that is taking the offering, you, the readiness to will. Verse 12, for if there be first a willing mind, if there be a willing mind. Paul is not a high-pressured salesman uh, for this offering. Number three, give what you can. Give what you can. Verse, verse 12, uh, the end of the verse, he says, It is accepted according to that a man hath, not according to that he hath not. The tithe belongs to God. You determine your offering. Paul says if you don't have any extra, you don't have to feel guilty. If you can't give to God's work because of covetousness, then you're probably in debt. Learn to be content. Stop credit card spending. Get on a plan to get out of debt and stay out of debt. Number four, give to help others in need. Now, an oft misunderstood passage, verse 13, For I mean not that other men be eased and ye burden, but by an equality that now at this same, your abundance may be a supply for their want, that their abundance also may be a supply for your want, that there may be equality. Now, there's a quote, Old Testament quote, as it is written, he that had gathered much, had nothing over, and he that gathered little had no lack, referring back to the manna uh, that was uh, gathered in the wilderness. This is not a verse to support communism. This is not a verse to support socialism. This offering he's asking them to take is a one-time offering to help suffering Christians. The Bible clearly holds to personal ownership. You can't have a commandment uh, that says Thou shalt not steal. If you can't own things, if we all own things together, then we're not. We wouldn't be able to steal because we would all own it together. And that is not what the Bible teaches. I, I have a letter here from uh, uh, from our missionary to the Middle East, uh, uh, Edgar Fagali. Many Syrian Christians. Have, uh, have lost their homes. Uh, he says, many Syrian refugees lost their homes. They were arrested by ISIS and killed with hardly any attention paid to their plight by the media. Uh, he says uh, they have fled their homes. Uh, they're fleeing their country. They have no jobs, no food. They have no means to take care of themselves. And uh, uh, he says that it's a desperate, uh, a desperate situation. Uh, he writes that that uh, they are sitting ducks between the Syrian army and their Russian allies on the one side and ISIS and the Sunni Muslims are rebels on the other side. And he says exactly what Paul says in this letter. He says, Please do not feel obligated to send money for help. However, should the Lord burden your heart to help, kindly send any contribution so there it is just as the Jerusalem Saints were suffering so now the Syrian Christians are suffering and you have the news and if God puts it upon your heart and uh, you want to be able to send it to, to Dr. Fagali, you can give it to the church send it to him direct if you want uh, but that that's how it works that's what happened there and that's what happens here today give number five when spiritual leaders support it we see that in verse 16 but thanks be to God, which put the same earnest care into the heart of Titus for you. For indeed he accepted the exhortation, but being more forward of his own accord, he went unto you. Uh, they they liked Titus, they trusted Titus. And these Corinthian Christians, because of their love for Titus and Titus' support for the offering, that showed a consensus that the spiritual leaders uh, were supporting it. Paul says, hey, look, uh, Titus is, wants to be a part of this on his own accord. Number six, give where there is integrity and accountability. We pick that up in verse 18. And when, uh, and we have sent with him The brother whose praise is in the gospel throughout all the churches. We don't know who the brother is. He's famous. He has a good reputation. It's highly likely that it could be Luke. Luke was a Gentile Christian. Uh, Luke uh, wrote a gospel. And so it could be Luke, but we don't know. And not only that only, but who was also chosen of the churches to travel with us. So, the churches chose this man with this grace, this grace of giving, which is administered by us to the glory of the same Lord and declaration of your ready mind. Avoiding this, that no man should blame us in this abundance which is ministered by us. The abundance means this is a big offering. It's a very big offering for these uh, poor Christians. Providing for honest things, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. And when we have sent with them our brother, whom we have oftentimes proved diligent in many things, but now much more diligent upon you, great confidence which I have in you. Whether any do inquire of Titus, he is my partner and fellow helper concerning you of our brethren, be inquired of. They are the messengers of the churches and show the glory of Christ. You say, what's this all about? Well, Paul is anticipating the objections of some of the people in the church in Corinth that are going to make accusations against him. Paul we know why you want to take this offering. Paul, you're a Jew and you used to persecute the Jews and now you're feeling guilt, Jewish Christians, and now you're feeling guilty and you want us as Gentile Christians to go help them. Paul, you're in this thing for the money. And so Paul, he puts up a defense before they can even make their attack. Paul says it's not just Titus, but there's this famous brother and he's our CPA. He has integrity. And he is going to make sure that everything is accounted for in a proper fashion. This offering is going to be done with integrity, it is going to be done with honesty, verse 21. What a contrast to what we see today. Commentator John Phillips says Beware of every Tom, Dick, and Harry ministry that asks for your money, especially those on radio and TV. They promise prosperity, they promise healing. They are lying. You know, we have churches in our area that support those kinds of ministries. They support those kinds of mother churches that are filled with excesses. Look back to chapter 6, verse 3. Look in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 3. Paul wrote them, "...giving no offense in anything that the ministry be not blamed." It is a fact that many of these radio and TV ministries and preachers, they take lucrative salaries, they live in multi-million dollar homes, they dishonor Christ, they bring a black eye to Christianity. Please, Paul says, don't send them a single dollar. When you give to our missionaries, you know where it's going. You know the missionaries you can have them into your home for dinner. You can visit them on the mission field. You can see how they are spending the missionary support we send them. You visit a Stan Templeton in Peru. You visit a, a, a Eric Johnson in Dominican, a Tim Tyler in Romania, a David Hostelvook in Albania, a Lawrence Lance in Uganda, the DeLucas in Greece, a Phil Pinero in Vanuatu. You know them. You know where it's going. Why would you give to a ministry and You really don't have the accountability. So here's what we do. Our our church church books are reviewed by a CPA every year and have been for over 27 years. At our church, we have five pastors. We have a business manager. We have 11 deacons who review all kinds of of financial details. And just like here in verse 16 and 17, there is a consensus of what direction we go. There is a congregational vote, not an elder vote, at an annual business meeting. Our quarterly income and expense statement, it's posted in the bulletin board down the hallway, and anybody here can see it. An informed people is a contented people, as my father-in-law has taught me. Number seven, number seven. Give where you know where it's going. Give your living while you're giving so you're knowing where it's going, all right? <laughs> and so in chapter 8, verse 24 he says, Wherefore show ye to them and before the churches the proof of your love and our boasting. Beginning in chapter 9, he's, Paul says, uh, I don't need to write this again. It's, it's not superfluous, redundant to tell you again. I have bragged to others about your love and your giving. Your promise to give has inspired others. What if the Macedonians come with me for a visit and you've not taken your offering? He says, You'll be embarrassed. I'll be embarrassed. We'll both be embarrassed but I have faith in you. I know your love that you want to help these Christians. I know. I know it. So number seven, give where you know where it's going. Give where you know where it's going. So how do you conquer covetousness? I don't think it's complicated. It's hard, but it's not complicated. Love God for who He is. Thank God for what He has given you. Give to God For what he has promised. What's the promise? Joy in your heart on earth, treasure in heaven. George Mueller said it well. God judges what we give by what we keep. God judges what we give by what we keep. Church family, this is a message that is not a rebuke in any way because I believe this church family has shown generosity par excellent. I say to you, good job for your testimony because your giving reflects. You love God. You love people. Glory to God.